Well, we are moving our way, uh, winding down in Genesis, and we come to a very, very uh, famous passage that we want to talk about today in chapter 49. Last week, uh, we talked uh, about missed opportunities, right? About Reuben and Simeon uh, and uh, Levi, and uh, uh, how uh, decisions that they had made earlier in their life uh, ended up playing a role in the trajectory of their descendants. Uh, and, uh, and so we could say uh, that they or the, you know, their uh, tribes uh, missed out on, on particular opportunities, although they never stopped being a tribe uh, and, uh, and receiving land, uh, except for the Levites or the priests. Uh, and so it's kind of, kind of interesting in, in that way. But clearly here we see uh, the, the concept of they were passed over. So now we come to Judah, the fourth son of uh, Leah, okay? And so this is kind of interesting because we have to ask ourselves, why doesn't he get passed over also? Uh, we read bad things about him too, you know? So it is kind of interesting, just by observation, uh, how Judah is portrayed in Genesis. So... The first observation about Judah is that unlike uh, Reuben and uh, Simeon and Levi, we don't read anything about his life other than him being born until we're in the story of Joseph, okay? So with Reuben and uh, Levi and Simeon, you read about them, about their exploits before the, uh, the story of Joseph. So that's kind of interesting that anything we know about uh, uh, Judah is contained in between chapter 37 and 50. Okay? So it kind of tells us that the, what we call the story of Joseph, which, by the way, the Bible never calls it the story of Joseph. Okay, <laughs> it, it doesn't. We call it the story of Joseph. In the Bible, if you look at the text at the beginning of chapter 37, it's the generations of Joseph. Uh, it's about the 12 sons centering on the story of Joseph. And oftentimes in the ancient world, genealogies would be in the form of a story. Okay? So it is also about Judah, even though Joseph is the main character, no doubt, and, and so on and so forth. But in the story, we do read about Judah. We read, uh, for example, uh, it's kind of a mixed bag in a way. Uh, at the beginning of the story, Judah is the one who says, how is it going to benefit us if we kill him? Okay, let's uh, sell him. He doesn't say, let's take him home. You know, let's redeem him. Uh, but he doesn't want to kill him. Now, Reuben also uh, has that idea of not killing him. But what's interesting even there is, is that it, it's, when you read it, Judah's plan takes precedence over Reuben. And it's kind of like Reuben, the firstborn, is kind of like going downhill and Judah's kind of going uphill, you know, in terms of influence. Because Judah is, for better or for worse, influential, uh, even at the beginning of the story. So that's, that's kind of interesting. Then we read something really horrific about Judah, right? The Judah Tamar story, right? How he does uh, a lot of wrong things there. First, he, you know, he doesn't fulfill the obligation of giving the, his youngest son to Tamar. And then he ends up having sexual relations with him. 
I mean, you know, it doesn't get any worse than that, right? And then at the end of the story, you know, he's caught red-handed, so to speak, uh, and he confesses. But still, you know, uh, Reuben and uh, Simeon and Levi, they did bad things too, but they're overlooked. So, you know, uh, we, we can't say exactly why it is uh, that Judah isn't overlooked. Uh, now, some who only view this, you know, sort of uh, horizontally or historically or very critically uh, might, uh, might say that, well, maybe Jacob was not aware of the, of the uh, Judah and Tamar uh, exploits, you know? But that doesn't really hold water when we, when, because God was aware of it, right? Uh, and, uh, and clearly Judah is chosen, uh, you know, to be, the, uh, to be the king. So I think one of the things that we learn is that uh, focused on Judah is really the issue of redemption, that while he could have been passed over or maybe should have been passed over, he wasn't. He wasn't. And this is true for a real famous particular descendant of Judah also along the same lines, which is very interesting. So in the uh, Genesis account, we see that Judah shows leadership, Judah sins, and then Judah becomes, toward the end of the story, uh, the one who becomes the spokesperson uh, for the sons of Israel and uh, the one uh, who uh, offers up himself and his own sons you know, uh, in order to save Benjamin when he speaks to Jacob uh, and all of that. So uh, you see in the story that by the end of the story, Judah is making uh, positive contributions. Uh, and so that's the observation of, of what's happening here. Uh, but quite clearly, uh, he's, called of, uh, he's called of God. And uh, we see later on that Judah becomes the tribe that has really the, uh, you know, the uh, very powerful in terms of people, in terms uh, also of leadership. Remember in the book of Numbers, when the tribes are placed around the Ark of the Covenant, that Judah is in front and, uh, and leading. And so God calls we could say God calls Judah warts and all for this purpose. So when we come now to verses 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, I, we now see what is the prophetic blessing given to Judah. Now it is interesting, um, in, in Hebrew, I'll just read it. Hey, why not? So there's something kind of interesting uh, right at the beginning of this text. Okay, so for you Hebrew uh, readers, uh, here I'm going to read it, and maybe you can maybe you can uh, figure it out when you look at uh, what it says. Now, how many of you are an MSI Hebrew? How many of you are graduates of MSI Hebrew? Ah, okay. So here we go. Okay, all right, good. So it says in verse eight. So uh, Yehuda, Ata, Yoducha. Achecha. Okay, so you're saying, I have no idea. Okay, so Yehuda, right, Judah, 
Then it says your brothers. So your brothers is achecha and shall praise you. They shall praise you. Yoducha. But there's an extra word in there that is, that's not translated. And it's not actually in any English translation because it's, I guess, understood. And, that, and so I'm going to read it again. Yehuda ata yoducha achecha. The word ata is there, and the word ata is you. And so there's an extra you in there. So if we were going to just you know, read it word for word, it would be, Judah, you, your brothers shall praise you. So I think it's, it's sort of, uh, it works like emphatically that there's an extra word, you, you, Judah. So as if like, like really pointing him out, Yehuda, ata, yoducha achecha. Judah, you, your brothers shall praise you. So he's like, he is uh, like uh, separated or he is uh, selected, you know, or pointed out as you are the one whom your brother, your brothers shall praise you. Okay? Uh, and so, not number one, not number two, not number three, but number four. Okay. And uh, perhaps uh, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Maybe it's even a play on words. You know, Yehuda, Yeducha, it's from the same word, right? Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Certainly the preeminence... Uh, of Judah, uh, perhaps foreshadowing the victories of David, you know, later on, right? Uh, that, uh, you know, David was a powerful uh, warrior uh, and victorious, right? And then it says, your father's sons shall bow down to you. Now, it's interesting. It's a kind of an interesting phrase also, your father's sons. Why does it say your father's sons? Maybe because the fa- Jacob's sons had four different mothers, okay? But in other words, all the sons of Jacob, nobody is left out here. All the sons of Jacob, your father's sons, the sons of Israel, right, shall bow down to you. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, I'm not sure. I have to say I'm not sure exactly if there's a uh, what the meaning is of this, but there has to be some kind of relationship between the, the, the dream of Joseph, where his brothers are going to bow down to him, and now here, uh, Judah, your brothers shall bow down to you. You know, it is kind of interesting. Perhaps it's, uh, in a way, Joseph foreshadows uh, Judah, uh, perhaps. Uh, we could say temporally, over this period of time, Joseph uh, is doing, in a way, what it says uh, Judah is going to do over the ages. And so perhaps Joseph functions as a type of Judah. It's kind of, kind of interesting to think of it that way. Because as we said last time, and as we'll see next time, uh, that uh, Judah and Joseph are the preeminent, are the preeminent tribes. And so uh, perhaps in the, and when we come to the end of Genesis this way, that uh, the story of Joseph is a type. Uh, we, we often will say Joseph is a type of Israel, right? Uh, a type of the history of the Jewish people. And so perhaps we could say even more specifically a type of Judah. Where here in chapter 49, 
you have the uh, prophetic blessing or the prophetic promise uh, given to Judah and not Joseph. So that's kind of interesting. Then we read here, so we see the preeminence of Judah. I mean, that's what we could say in verse 9. The preeminence of Judah. Then it says, Judah is a lion's whelp or a lion's cub. Okay, so it uses the word lion. That's also uh, rather interesting. Okay, in fact, that uh, picture of Judah uh, became emblematic uh, with uh, the king of Israel and even the nation of Israel, you know, in terms of its uh, symbolism, right? Then we read in a couple of places, a couple of prominent places, about this issue of the lion of Judah, the lion's cub or the lion's whelp. One is uh, in Numbers, the book of Numbers, in chapter 24. And it's very interesting uh, here, this famous messianic passage. Okay, in verse, uh, in this, I'll read verses 8 and 9. It's in verse 9, but we'll read verse 8 too. God brings him out of Egypt. He is for him like the horns of a wild ox. He shall devour the nations who are his adversaries and shall crush their bones in pieces and shatter them with uh, his arrows. He couches, he, lays, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him? Blessed is everyone who blesses you, and, and cursed is everyone who curses you. Isn't it interesting how this text refers back to a combination of Genesis chapter 12 and chapter 49, the promise given to Abraham uh, and uh, the promise given to Judah. That's a, We talk about that, by the way, a little bit in our MSI uh, course, but, but today we'll just mention it, that it's there. Uh, and, and so uh, this issue of as a lion, who dares rouse him up? So what we learn there is, and what we learn in Genesis here is, is that he's dangerous, right? That he's, he, you know, he is, uh, yes, the king, the benevolent king, but you don't want to mess around with him, right? Uh, because he's like a... a a lion uh, uh, crouching down. Who dares rouse him up, right? I, in fact, isn't that, uh, this is a great place to uh, uh, mention, you know, he's, what is that, that, that line from the lion, the witch of the wardrobe? Uh, he's safe, but he's dangerous. He's good, but he's not safe. Oh, that's what it is. He's good, but he's not safe, Right? Uh, and sort of alluding to this kind of, uh, uh, th- you know, this kind of understanding. He's good, but he's not safe. Meaning that, uh, you know, we, we, don't, we don't take advantage of God. We don't take God for granted. We don't, you know, very, very, uh, very important, uh, you know, to understand. Uh, in fact, I have a little note in my Bible here that I, uh, I wrote to turn to Matthew chapter 3 and verse 12 on this. Uh, and you know what it says there? And his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear the threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. In other words, uh, you know, the king is, is the one who saves. The king is also the one who judges. He's also the one who chastises. He is indeed the king. The buck stops with the lion from the tribe of Judah, right? 
Then, of course, uh, we read in uh, Revelation, in chapter 5, how the king of Judah, who we know to be Yeshua, of course, never loses his identity. Chapter 5 and verse 5. Isn't that interesting? You know, think about this. There's a passage in 2 Corinthians where Paul says, we know no one by uh, their flesh anymore, right? And so sometimes people use that to say, we know no one by their natural state, by who they are or their ethnic identity or anything like that. We're new creatures in Messiah. We know no one according to the flesh. Yet here in Revelation chapter 5, in verse 5, it says, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book with its seven seals. So isn't that interesting? He's still known the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Uh, And so uh, Yeshua never loses his uh, personal identity. And may we say by extension that neither will we. Neither will we. Okay. So Judah is a lion's uh, whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. Uh, And that's understood in a number of ways. The evolution of the power of the tribe of Judah, you know, uh, and of David and, uh, and even then Solomon and... Uh, and so on. But it does speak, you know, of indeed his, his power. Then it says he couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up, as we saw in the book of Numbers. Uh, he is the king, he is very powerful, uh, and uh, dangerous, or as we could say, not safe. Okay. Now we read here the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the uh, peoples. Okay. What we're seeing here is power and leadership. Power and leadership will not leave the tribe of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The kingship shall not depart uh, from Judah, nor the ruler's staff, leadership, kingship, from between his feet. Now, we could say that the scepter and the ruler's staff, you know, are very poetic ways of just talking about the kingship of of God, you know, or the kingship of Israel uh, so far, right? Shall never uh, leave the tribe of Judah. It tells us that the only legitimate king of Israel can be from the tribe of Judah. Remember the Hasmoneans? Remember the Hanukkah story? Remember uh, Yohanan Hyrcanus, oftentimes known as John Hyrcanus, right? Proclaimed himself as the king of Israel. Uh-oh, from the wrong tribe. Uh, and then uh, the, the sages got real mad at him. And hence we have uh, the way the whole story is told in the Talmud is a little bit different than in uh, the Maccabees. Uh, because they were very upset. The sages were very upset with the Maccabees of usurping kingship. Even though the, in a generation past they uh, saved the temple and all that. It's kind of interesting. So the only legitimate king is from the tribe of Judah. It also tells us something about the ten tribes, right? The northern kingdom was illegitimate. The kingdom, the northern kingdom called Israel was illegitimate. 
uh, the only legitimate king uh, would be in Jerusalem, as sinful as they may be. But the only legitimate kingship can come from Judah. Okay, uh, let's see. All right, uh, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, the rule shall until Shiloh comes. Oh, yes, that's, this is great. This has several different meanings, possible meanings, not several different meanings, possible meanings. And nobody knows exactly what it means. Some people would say it's the town, okay, Shiloh. And uh, that, that could mean a couple of things uh, until Shiloh comes. Uh, some would say, well, it's the town, and it means... Uh, when uh, the, you have a unification of the nation because Shiloh is in the northern kingdom, right? Uh, and so when uh, the northern kingdom would all return to Judah uh, at, at, the end of, at the end of days, you know, when there's one kingdom, perhaps it means uh, uh, that. Uh, others would say it means uh, the city of, of Shiloh and meaning that... Uh, uh, and wrongly so, that the scepter, uh, that the kingship actually ends uh, at the, uh, when the, when the king, when the two nations, when the ten tribes went and formed another nation, uh, until Shiloh comes about, until, in other words, you know, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, until there's like the northern kingdom. Well, that, none of these really fit the, you know, the, the text as we, as we read it and understand it. Uh, then there is uh, also perhaps the proper name of the Messiah. I won't take the time, but you do have in in, uh, in some of the rabbinic literature and some of the targums that Shiloh becomes like a messianic title, like the name of the Messiah. Okay, because this is a messianic prophecy in in uh, in Judaism. Uh, this passage. Okay, uh, and so perhaps the name of the Messiah. Now, the, uh, the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls, when you think about the history of the interpretation of it, uh, is basically, it takes it to be Shiloh, that which is his, or that which belongs to him. And in both the uh, uh, Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint, you don't have that exact translation, but almost that exact translation, that which is his, that which is his, Shiloh that which is his. You have to, it's not perfect. Even there, it's not perfect. But I would say that most conservative scholars take that as what it means, that which is, that which belongs to him or that which is his, okay? And that would be the, the, the kingdom, the, the, the messianic kingdom, okay? Uh, but one thing, you know, we can say for sure, even if uh, we're not sure exactly what that word shiloh means. It means that it mean, it's something big, <laughs> okay? Uh, in other words, it's sort of like an esk. It's like an end time big event, and and it has something to do with with uh, until he you know comes into his own. You know, you could even say it that way. He comes into his own because right after that it says, "And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples," okay? Uh, the obedience of the nations. And so whatever Shiloh is, uh, is uh, gives him the obedience of the, of the peoples. Uh, and so the point being here uh, is that Judah is the preeminent tribe. He's going to be militarily victorious. 
Uh, all of his brothers are going to uh, yield to him. Uh, he is powerful, right? You don't want to mess around with him. Uh, his kingship will not, de- the kingship will not depart from him. Leadership will not depart from him. And there is a time that comes when all of the nations uh, will give him obedience. Okay? So this is understood uh, uh, clearly as a, uh, you know, as a messianic prophecy uh, in, in Judaism and in the Christian world as well. Uh, now, it says a couple of other things, and then I'll say a few, a few more things about it. It says, he ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. So there's a few places that you could uh, read uh, in, your, uh, in your Bible where you'll see parts of this. In, De- in Zechariah chapter 9, you know, it talks there about uh, the foal of the donkey. Uh, and then you have a passage in the 21st chapter of Matthew uh, where uh, it says this was to fulfill the prophecy, you know, of riding on the, riding on the donkey. And so you do read it here, and so perhaps it's an allusion to it. It could also mean, speaking of the donkey's colt, that uh, naturally a donkey's colt might destroy the vine, but the vineyard is so uh, powerful and and big that even uh, the donkey can't destroy the vine. And then he washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes, speaks of just, uh, you know, his power, uh, his bigness. Uh, so we see uh, it's about power and about uh, his leadership and, you know, and, uh, and, and all of that. And then his eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. Teeth white from milk is like a euphemism for, uh, you know, for beauty, uh, for beauty. Uh, and, and so you have this great picture. This great picture of, of Judah and of the king uh, and the kingship. Uh, and so then when, you, uh, when we look uh, in this a little bit farther down in, um, a little bit farther down in history, right? We know that in David's day, right? In 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7, right? You have the great promise given to David, right? So there we read in verse 12 of 2 Samuel chapter 7, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So it it gets narrowed down. This is really important. It gets narrowed down to a descendant of David. This king who is going to rise up, uh, who will be king on his throne forever. Uh, not only someone from the uh, a tribe of Judah, but now we see this is going to be a descendant of David. Clearly a descendant of King David. Okay, I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him. And the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. So, of course, in the immediate, he's talking about Solomon, 
He's talking about Solomon. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your dynasty, David, through your son Solomon will last forever. Okay? Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all these visions, so Nathan spoke to David. Now, you know, I love to read what comes right after this. You know, how David responded uh, to this. Because David understands this is huge. David gets it. He knows this is not only about Solomon. Yes, Solomon is the, uh, you know, the, the, the next installment of the promise. But, whew, wow, this has far-reaching consequences. So David says, Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord, God? And what is my house that thou hast brought me this far? And yet this was insignificant in my eyes, O Lord God. For thou hast spoken also of the house of thy servant concerning the distant future. See, he knows it's not just about Solomon. The distant future. And then you have this great little phrase that's translated a hundred different ways because nobody really knows how to translate it. And where it says, this is the custom of man, O Lord God. Right? You may have something else there at the very end of verse 19. Okay? You know what it says? Uh, Torat Adam. Torat Adam, like the Torah of mankind, the instruction of mankind, that is for the distant future and for the whole world. Torat Adam. It's a great, great phrase. It really, it's too bad you have to translate it, right? It's Torat Adam. Uh, the manner, people have the manner of mankind or the custom of man, different things. Uh, uh, and so, very interesting. Uh, I think that... that it just shows you something about David there and his humility, right? Okay. Now, there's something else. When this uh, gets uh, talked about a second time in First Chronicles, there's something really interesting that takes place when this is written in First Chronicles. Okay, First Chronicles. Who knew we were going to go to First Chronicles? First Chronicles chapter 17. Okay, so if you know your, uh, a little bit about the Bible history and everything, you know that Chronicles is a lot different than Kings. Chronicles is not a history. It is really a series of sermons encouraging the people based on the history. Okay? It's also written later. And that's why if you have a Jewish Bible, like from a Jewish publisher, it's at the end. First and Second Chronicles is at the end. Okay? And so one of the things that we learn here is how this idea of the kingdom of David evolved over time and how it was understood after the Babylonian captivity. Okay? All right. If you didn't get all that, it's just one, one point I want to make. Okay? And that is, I'm going to read from 1 Chronicles 17 uh, in verse 11 the same thing, but there's one little tiny change from what we read in 2 Samuel. And it shall come about when your days are fulfilled that you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up one of your descendants after you who shall be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it away from him who was before you. Isn't that great? The writer of Chronicles doesn't even want to mention Saul's name. Okay? All right. Uh, but I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever. 
and his throne shall be established forever. Look at verse 14. My house, and most importantly, my kingdom. In 2 Samuel, it says his kingdom. Here, it's my kingdom. This is very significant in that here we're beginning to see that the kingdom of David is God's kingdom. The kingdom of David is the kingdom of God. There's only one kingdom. The kingdom of David is indeed the kingdom of God. So therefore, when you come to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 1, and Miriam or Mary is uh, getting some information about what is taking place uh, here in her body, right? You read here in verse uh, 30, of Luke chapter 1. And the angel said to her, and who this angel is is very important, we'll learn in a moment. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Yeshua, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So what we learn here in Luke chapter 1 is that Yeshua is the final installment of the promise that God made to David of the Davidic kingdom. And that Yeshua is the king of Israel and of the nations. But when we think about the kingdom, whether we're calling it in different places, whatever you, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, it is the kingdom of of Israel. And so Yeshua is the king of the Jews, the king of Israel, and of all who call upon his name. So you don't have this, this, um, this kingdom of God, this, the, the heavenly uh, uh, kingdom, and, and so on, that is like something different than the Davidic kingdom. The Davidic kingdom is the kingdom of God. That has a million ramifications, right? Uh, but it's important that we get that, that, going back to Genesis chapter 49, all right? And Yeshua understood himself as this king, because one of the places that we uh, read about Yeshua's self-identity, if you go back to Daniel chapter 7, in verses 13 and 14, it says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, the obedience of the peoples, glory and a kingdom, that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion has an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one, which shall not be destroyed." You know, in the uh, uh, period, in the Second Temple period, there was a lot of questions about this passage, right? Uh, you can read it in uh, Daniel Boyarin's book, The Jewish Gospels. That does this? Was there a second God? Was there a, a junior God? What? Who is this Son of Man? If you already have the Ancient of Days sitting on His throne, who is this other figure? Right? Well, it gets cleared up when Yeshua comes. It gets cleared up when Yeshua comes. He is indeed this Son of Man. And this is what Yeshua called himself, the Son of Man. 
And in Matthew 24, we don't have time to turn, but in Matthew 24, he'll talk about when the Son of Man comes in the clouds. This was his self-understanding, that he is indeed the king. Okay, so what does this all mean to us? Well, one thing it means to us, uh, when we talk about the Jewish being messianic, and we talk about uh, Yeshua being the king, uh, it's important that we understand he's still the lion from the tribe of Judah. He is still Israel's king. And no matter who we are, when we come to embrace Yeshua, this is how we come into what's called the commonwealth of Israel, as you read it in Ephesians chapter 2. It doesn't mean we're Jewish, but it means we come under the king of Israel. The king of Israel. And even if people's a doctrinal statement doesn't include it, they're still there under the, the, uh, the, uh, the king of Israel, whether they know it or not. There are many uh, well-meaning, wonderful people that deny the very identity of the king whom they serve. We're usually thinking about who we are, right? Oh, wait a minute, no, you know, about our identity, our identity, our identity. What about his identity, you know? So many people dismiss or deny his own identity. How important it is for us to remember it. And how important it is that as time goes on in the Second Temple period, we see here that this, the kingdom of David begins to be understood as this is the kingdom of God. And once, remember, in this, after the Babylonian captivity, there was no longer a king. And so now we're looking forward to the king. And when this king comes, this is the king, this is the one whom David promised. And this is the beginning of the Alam Haba, the eschaton, the whole, the whole shebang, right? Uh, and we know that when Yeshua came, that is the beginning of the end of the pouring out of the Ruach. It's all connected, right? The pouring out of the Ruach is what the king does, what the messianic king does when he comes. And this is exactly what Yeshua does. So he is our messianic king. Okay, so that's one thing. And we can all pat ourselves on the back because we're all, we all understand that, right? But then I, I cannot conclude uh, <laughs> without a little bit of a challenge, right? That is, if he is indeed the king, then how are we living as people uh, under the king of Israel? He is the benevolent king who gave us a way of life, who promises us uh, so much. Uh, uh, are we living in such a way that we honor the king and that we live for the king and that we live in a, in a manner of, of, of life that honors the king and honors the name of the king? We love it when we say right now that we honor his Jewish identity, the line from the tribe of Judah. But what about the fact that he's the king? You know, do we honor his kingship or do we, um, uh, do we drag his kingship through the mud? Do we profane his kingship by the way we live or do we honor his kingship by the way we live? There are many, many, many passages that refer to Yeshua as king and talk about the kingdom. And I'll just close with, with this reminder that in the book of, Col in the letter uh, to the believers of Colossae, uh, Colossians, in the first chapter, we read here that he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, to the messianic kingdom, Right? Uh, and so we were in dark, no matter who we are, we have been, been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. May we remember that 
every minute of every day. This is whom we, this is whom we live for. This is who has given us life. This is the one who has redeemed us. He is our king. And isn't it great in Jewish tradition that every time we eat something uh, or go somewhere or believe it or not, just about anything, right? We remember that. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech Ha'olam. Blessed are you, O Lord our God. We don't just say king of Israel, do we? King of the universe. The sovereign king. Isn't that great? We remember that all the time. Melech Ha'olam. Indeed, the king of the universe. The sovereign one. We remember it when we say the Kaddish. We remember it when we have a Kiddish. We remember it when we uh, eat, when we have fellowship, when we give thanks. We're always remembering that God is indeed our king and that Yeshua is indeed the Davidic king of the universe. Let's pray. Lord, thank you, God, that we can go all the way back to Jacob and see this prophetic blessing slash promise of the tribe of Judah. Not because of any righteousness of his own, but because of your calling, Lord. You called out that tribe. And not because of any righteousness of his own, but because of the calling, you called out David and Solomon. And Lord, what Judah has in common with David and who has in common with Solomon, who has in, column, in common with Rehoboam, uh, all the way through Josiah and his sons, is that they were all imperfect. Every one of them, no matter who they were, were all imperfect. None of them qualified until we come to King Yeshua, King Messiah, who is indeed the one from whom the scepter and the ruler's staff will never depart. Lord, we thank you that this world is filled with kings, but who are, who are even on the best day imperfect, and some very, very imperfect. But Lord, thank you that our king sits on his throne forever. Thank you, Lord, that he is indeed the one whom we serve, and he is indeed the one in whom we hope. We thank you, and we pray in Messiah's name.